men. First Corinthians chapter 11. You know, I could have went several ways with uh, what I'm going to talk about this morning. And this is what the Lord, I believe, put on my heart. As we go there and we go to First Corinthians chapter 11 without any apologies, any embarrassment, because we want to see what the creator of genders has to say about the subject of men and women this morning, understanding that as the creator of the game, he retains the right to make the rules. And as long as he's keeping score, we might as well be careful to do what he says, even if it strikes us a little odd at some times. You know, we live in a culture that's changing rapidly, to me, changing rapidly negatively. But we have rules that we should live by. Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Later on in the New Testament, Galatians 3.28, by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. But however, when it comes to our roles in life and authority, just as in the sphere of life, different people have different roles. Now, today, we know if you feel like you are a certain person, you can be or say that you are that person or that gender. Now, that's brand new to me. No science involved in that at all. But if you definitely, if you identify a certain way, that's who you are, but not to God. He's the standard. He calls the shots. He sets the standard and the last time I checked, he, he does not change. You know, it's almost and probably is demonic how the culture is trying to destroy the nuclear family, God's institution. And that's a little what Paul is setting in order here in the, first, in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The culture we live in today seems to devalue men, and that's not by accident. Those that are anti-God is trying to destroy the nuclear family. The issue Paul seems to be addressing in verses 3 through 16 to the women in the Corinthian church participating in public worship, dressed inappropriately, it seems, even, you could say, scandalously. And what we have to understand, by the time the Christian faith has taken hold, we are considered peculiar and odd people. Christians were considered as atheists since they didn't honor the traditional gods. 
Paul's wanting to avoid any scandals concerning Christianity wherever possible. The problem seems to be that these, and we ran across them before in the first chapter, in the fourth chapter, I think, these spiritual women, so-called, in the congregation, they were exercising their new Christian freedoms in ways that were bringing division within the church and threatened to scandalize the church in the community at large by worshiping with bare heads, just like the men. Now, for us, we say, hey, that's no big deal. But in that culture and time, it was. Chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, let me read it. It says, now I praise you, Paul writing to the Corinthians, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions. That's the apostolic uh, uh, teachings. That's what that tradition means, just as I delivered to them. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man in creation. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also can, comes through, through, through the woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is the glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such customs or teachings, nor do the churches of God. This need to be carefully unraveled and thoughtfully examined this morning. You might have questions such as, what is the setting being addressed here? You might say, I understand something about praying, but what's this prophesying thing all about? You're saying what this head covering is all about. What is Paul talking about? You might say, why would anyone care What's on the top of someone's head? You would certainly say, why do the angels care? What's on someone's head? And what, what's with this long hair phobia? I thought Jesus had long hair. The Jews were told, if you can remember, not to use a razor on the side of their head 
So what's happening? Questions abound in this passage, and so do stupid answers. I read across a few of them as I was preparing for this lesson. For instance, one author actually wrote, Paul was probably bald and simply jealous of Bible characters like Samson or Absalom. What is this all about? We're here to sort this out this morning. There are several things in these sentences that sort of strike us, and we should know what those things are. And I believe it will help us understand this passage better. We have some things as we read through this passage that are local, they are historical, they are time-bound, and cultural. There are other things as we read through this that are permanent, universal, and timeless. So we'll be jumping back and forth. Paul appeals to the nature of these. What do you think? Can't you see? Don't you make this connection? This leads us to believe that perhaps the things he's speaking in reference to those terms might be local or cultural or time-bound issues, not to mention the obvious incongruities of the Old Testament teachings about, for instance, worship. And if you know passages like Exodus 32 or Exodus 36, all kinds of passages that show us that the priests, when they would be officiating, would wear turbans on their heads. Now, the high priest, he, he had it going on. He wore a magnificent turban on his head, and that was cool for him, I'm sure. Did God change things all of a sudden? Did he change his mind about what men should wear? and offenses to the things on the top of your head, maybe these things are time-bound issues, not to mention things like long hair. If there's a standard for us, and I don't have to worry about long hair anyway, in verses 14 and 15, it would be good to have some kind of absolute standard. Are we talking about close to the ear? Are we talking about to your shoulder? What are we talking about? Once again, these are time-bound and cultural issues. On the other hand, there are indicators in this passage that some things are permanent, universal, and timeless. For instance, notice in verse 3, a paradigm is laid out for us that begins with the Trinity, that the Father has a certain relationship with the Son and the Spirit. The Son, God the Father, relate particularly, and so it is that way in genders also. The Trinity hasn't changed, and it will never change. Seems to be immutable, forever timeless. It's a timeless kind of thing. We have in verses 7 through 9 references to creation, a historic event. Creation now is illustrated in terms of timing, in terms of order and prominence. All these kinds of issues that relate to creation, and now we're supposed to apply them. We're supposed to understand those things and how they provide a pattern for us. They're supracultural. They go beyond any particular culture. 
When we start referring to this, it's how we were created. Therefore, things ought to go this way. Now, distinguishing between them, you might say this looks like a lot of fancy footwork to try and figure out what the culture is speaking to us. But we have to understand we are holding a book that's at least 1,900 years old. Were you back then, you would have no problem as Paul writes this letter explaining what he's speaking of. But for us, 1,900 years later, we have to go back between what's culture, what's superculture, what was then, what's now, and try to figure this thing out. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Verse 3 tells us, Paul says, But I want you to know to a church filled with men and women. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the key word there is head, and we're not talking about that hairy knob on most of us shoulders, of our shoulders. He's talking about something else. He's speaking of some allegorical Way, some kind of analogous way speaking of this head. And there should be some leadership in terms of gender here. There's distinctions, which by way, what this passage is all about as they're expressed in our culture today. We're talking about the difference between the genders. And this is really kind of a topical subject that I believe the Lord spoke to me about. And I want you to notice how we immediately go to verse 3, and then we'll jump back to verse 4. It says in verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, that's a cultural symbol of some kind. All of a sudden, we pop back up to the top. Now, we have a principle, a timeless principle here. Whatever the cultural expression was, he's speaking of dishonoring his head. Almost certainly, Paul is referring to the external clothing they would wear. Some people say that's how the talit came by. The men would wear a shawl or something over their head, and that's what he's speaking of. But we know it's exterior here. And what Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, Back then, it it was dishonoring to your head. And he's not talking about dishonoring to, once again, the head on your shoulders. He's not speaking of that. Let's put it this way. I have been given a role as a man. I am called the head in some way. If I find myself to be male, so therefore, this headship thing, I don't know what that means quite yet. We haven't got there. But I know that there is a way for me to act as a male, as a man that dishonors God. That's what Paul is getting at. I'll give you a a good illustration. Say I was at the carnival. And I had a six-year-old boy, my son, and a four-year-old boy. And so I'm talking, 
And I say, hey, why don't you guys go, here's your some tickets, go play and have a good time for a while. I'm going to sit here and take it easy with Lydia because I don't like walking much. So they go off on the carnival. About 30 minutes later, I said, come on, let's go see where Anthony is. And I find Anthony and his little brother is not with him. And that's a problem in the summer hour household. And all of a sudden, I begin to ask him, where, where is Sam? Where's your brother? And Anthony begins to tell me, oh, well, Dad, you know, I was kind of thinking about, and I don't think Ethan needs me following him around. He's big enough to take care of himself. I said, well, what about the tickets? Did you get his tickets? Yeah, I gave him some tickets, but that's why I don't, I don't know where he's at, but I'm sure he can handle the situation. Now, all of a sudden, Anthony has a problem. That's great rationale that he gave me. That's a great excuse that he gave me. But at that time, all of a sudden, he has a problem with his head. That's what I'm trying to say. He did not obey the mandate that I gave him. And that's what Paul is trying to say about leadership. You expe- I expected you to keep up with your brother. I expected you to take charge. I expected you, Anthony, to be a leader, and you didn't do it. You failed. You have dishonored me, your head. You're in trouble now with me. And the text says whatever the head covering is, whatever the head covering thing about is, and I believe it's some kind of, like I said, toga or something. And we'll put that on pause for a minute. Whatever that means, there's a way in which this man who's been given a mandate from God can abdicate that mandate from God and end up dishonoring the one who gave him the mandate. That's what Paul is saying here. There's a way that that can be done. And what Paul is trying to say, there are distinct genders. God made them that way. One gender here I'm going to address has a particular role. It's bound up in that little four-letter word in the text, which is head. We don't know what that means yet. We haven't looked at it. But whatever that means, it should not be abdicated. And whatever the cultural expression of application of that is, it needs to be recognized as you are in some way dishonoring your head. Not the hairy knob on your shoulder once again, but the person who gave us the mandate. So you have to be careful to fulfill your role. Because in Scripture, that's bound up your role if you're a man is bound up in maleness. Let's put it this way. For Christ's sake, for his sake, be a man if you're a male. I'm talking to men this morning. I could have told Lori this is going to be a topical, but I'm going to weave it in with 1 Corinthians here, so just hang with me. We're getting there. Be a man for Christ's sake. 
We're talking about what now is taboo to talk about in our culture today for men. And the first expectation is for Christ's sake, not for any other reasons, for Christ's sake, fulfill your role. And your role, if you're a male, you're a man. What comes with that, a word we need to define, is head. Let's talk about that in, the, in this text Verse 3 says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see anything that defines for us? We see an analogy of what the head is. We see a relationship in the Godhead of three equals but different roles. He now is describing that in a, in, in a gender connection, but we don't have a definition so far to look at. So if you would turn from 1 Corinthians 11 to Ephesians 5.23, and in 5.23, the context is marriage. The same word is drawn up for us, but it's a different context. Context for 1 Corinthians 11, speaking of the church, uh, and then for Ephesians 5, he's speaking of the home. And what you find is a parallel expectation. The difference is in Ephesians 5.23, we have it defined for us. We have some words that help us understand what Paul is getting at. Let's look at the directions given to husband in a marriage relationship. For the husband is head. Same word. Same exact word, Greek word. It, but it still doesn't define it yet. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. It gives us an analogy. And he is the savior of the body. Now, we're going to skip over verse 24 because I know the women have their plan all worked out. They, 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 they exercise their roles perfectly. So we're not going to mess with the women. We're going to stay with the men for a while. Speaking of verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. There's the parallel. Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, the head of the wife. What did Christ do? Because he loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the action of headship. See, we have a concept of authority I know some of you guys are gun-shy about that word, but authority who loves those he's put in authority over, and he sacrifices on their behalf for their good. He says in verse 26 of Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. What's the idea of headship? It takes responsibility to provide for those kinds of things. What a love-motivated provision of support, of direction, of help. He's called the Savior here. That's a word of protection. All of that, by the way, spells initiative. It's all about initiative because let me just say, let me put, this, put it this way. Because whatever headship is, whatever headship does, 
I know for a certain, and you can write the word down, you can circle around it and slash, put a slash through it. It does not mean passivity. Whatever it means, headship does not equal passivity. I think we can come to the conclusion at that at least. To love someone, to serve and sacrifice on their behalf, to try and look out for their good is not a passive activity. It is an action. Put down Matthew 23, 11, because it's another example of headship in Scripture. Jesus says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's why in Christian circles, we often talk about servant leadership. Why? Because it's not sitting around on a couch with a scepter in one hand and a remote control in the other. It means leadership. Some guys, they like that part of sitting on the couch, but that's not all it means. It's activity. It's doing something for the good of others, what 1 Corinthians has been all about. So let's summarize this. Let me give you some biblical examples on what it means to be a man. And please, I know how you guys love YouTube. Please do not take your marching orders from a guy by the name of Andrew Tate. He's a con. He's a fake. And most of all, he's not a believer. They say Andrew Tate gets more hits on YouTube and Google, and his thing is teaching boys how to be men. And this dude, he's not even a Christian, but he has a slick talk And that shows you the need of boys becoming men in our culture because this guy gets more hits than anyone. Hey, how do you become a man? What what is a man? What is this? And he's feeding them lies. And he's telling them, you have to sleep around with this woman and sleep around with this woman and do all these other things in order to be a man. But that's not what the Bible says. A man in Scripture is a leader. Whatever else headship means, I think we can summarize it. It's leadership, rightly understood. It's not a dictatorship. It's not Saddam Hussein. It's not Mussolini. It's not Hitler. We're talking about a servant like Christ Jesus, giving himself sacrificially for the good of those around him. That's leadership in Scripture. Sacrificially giving of myself to provide what kinds of things, direction, guidance, support, it's all bound up in the initiative. Once again, it's not passivity, which, by the way, is where a lot of us think it should be. What what should we do about the kids' college We say, I don't know, whatever you think best. It's providing the initiative of guidance and direction. That doesn't mean we make every decision, but it means that there is a general pattern of initiation, giving these things sacrificially to those around us. And God wants to see male men headship. He wants that concept to be lived out. You know, when I think of leadership 
and maleness, I think of Moses. It took him a minute to get started. But when he began to trust God, and that's what every human being, but since we're speaking to males especially, when we begin to trust God, he got on a roll. What makes a good leader? It comes down to who you follow. And that's sort of oxymoronic there, a leader following someone. But that's what Moses did. If you remember, it took Moses a little bit to accept his role as Israel's leader. But when he did, he becomes a great leader. Exodus 33, verses 12 through 13, this is what it says. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He's got a specific concern, Moses does. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, I have found, if I have found grace in your sight, show me. Moses says, teach me now your way that I might know. What does Moses need to know in order for him to lead? Keep reading, that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. You see, to be a man, I'm going to lead your people, Lord. You're God's people. I need to know your wisdom so in order to lead his people. I need to be smart. I'm not talking about calculus smart. I couldn't be a leader there. I'm not talking about splitting atoms. I'm talking about I need to have wisdom. And I'm speaking of wisdom that comes from God. I can't lead if I don't know where I'm going. See, I recognize something is critical in this whole concept of headship. And that is that we as men who are called to lead, whether it's in the home or in church, we're not called to assume authority. It's not about assuming authority at all. It's about becoming an advocate of God's authority. And that's a critical decision. That's why I don't need my know-how. That's why I don't need, I need God's know-how. Because whether it's my family or the church, the deal is I need to know God's wisdom, to know how to lead God's people. And the people around me are all his. And so whatever leadership you've been called to be in, you need his insight. It's kind of a James 1 thing. James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We need that kind of insight. We need to dig for a proverb, one like silver or gold. We need to think. We need to contemplate and meditate on God's word. We need to be lifelong learners. We never can learn enough about the scriptures. Something attached with maleness and scripture is leadership. Think of Solomon. When he began to reign, King David had got all the stuff for, the, for the, the, the tabernacle. Solomon, a uh, uh, thin man at the time, wasn't 
he was in love with God at the time, and he tells God in his humility, he says in 1 Kings 3, 9, therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? That's an editorial comment, by the way. It says God was glad. God was pleased. Solomon had asked for this. And he still will be glad and he still will be pleased when we let him know we don't know it all. Therefore, I need your wisdom, Lord. I need your guidance, Lord. I'm directing your people, God. God, one thing he's looking for, leadership, are you available to lead? That's why I love the men breakfast. Hopefully the younger guys can get together with the older guys and they can discuss things and then you gain wisdom so much from that. God doesn't want you to assume leadership. No, he's looking for advocates of God's leadership in God's world, in God's circle, in God's playing field, that they would advocate God's leadership. That means they cry out for God's wisdom. Two things that God ties up with male masculine things in Scripture, headship and leadership. Be a leader. What does a leader need? They need smarts. I've said that. They need wisdom. They need insight. They need to know what to do. Turn with me to Joshua, a very uh, well-known passage, chapter 1, verse 6. I found out something, as I, especially well, I go, as I go through the Old and New Testament. Anytime we see the mantle of leadership begins to be felt or assumed by people in Scripture... We often find God's point, God pointing right to this next thing. It's the thing that Paul immediately discussed with Timothy. And it says in uh, Joshua 1.6, he says, be strong, God tells him. You have to be strong, Joshua. There's something in Scripture about the concept of males and masculinity. They were proud and they were unashamed to be men in the scriptures. And that's the way man, a man should be today. Leadership, you have to be strong. You have to be strong, God told Joshua. Be strong, and then he says, and be courageous because you will lead these people. You're gonna take a role. You're gonna be a headship in Israel. That means you're, you need my strength. You're gonna need to lead these people, Joshua, to inherit the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Joshua 1.7, he says, once again, only be strong. And then he adds to it, and very courageous. I always tell Bright, my, my, my boy, I, I tell him, act like a man. And I get that from David, King David, because he would tell Solomon that all the time. Be men. That's what God wants you to be that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. I'm saying there's something about men that God has naturally built into men in a physical sense, 
And it's a reminder to us that this is a necessary thing for us in leadership. You might remember 1 Peter 3, 7, a very, I'll say to some people, a very offensive verse to a lot of people. It says this, husbands, likewise, dwell with them, with them, speaking of the wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. That's where the plane hits the building. Weaker vessel. <laughs> All right, I'm not weak, I'm not weak. <laughs> We're not talking about mental smarts or emotional, but it just talks about weaker and stronger. That's all he's speaking of. I know the last time I arm wrestled my wife, I won. <laughs> I've never did that. But I would win. That's what I'm saying. No contest. My muscles are bigger than hers. I have more testosterone than she does. So, and you know what? I think God gives us that example for a reason. We are men. And it's not when she goes to Costco's, I, I get to carry all the boxes to the car. That's, that's why I have the muscles here. No. God wants the men to be leaders, and he shows us that in our physical makeup. And he says, now, I'm showing you in case you're slow about this, I made you differently because I want you to lead. And that reminds us, it reminds me day in and day out that I'm the head, I'm the leader, I'm supposed to be leading. Therefore, I must be in the word. I must get my wisdom from God because I'm leading a family. I'm leading a church. I must be in the scriptures and I must be in tune with God. And we lead. We lead. It's, it's, it's very simple. Joshua 1.9 will say this. God also says, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So you can have knowledge of the plan to be a leader. You can have strength to lead. But unless you are willing to take the risk, you start walking by faith, you're not going to be much of a leader. So be courageous or be brave. Embrace your masculinity, your maleship in Scripture, and be a man, and you be a man for Christ's sake because that's who he made you, and that's very important. What does that mean, that you're going to be a leader, that you're going to be smart, that you're going to be strong, that you're going to be brave? And I hope you're all not thinking that it, this sounds chauvinistic because I'm not. That's the concept of males, and it's masculinity in Scripture. It's a concept and a picture of something that is expected from men to give themselves to those around them, to those around them. It should be building. We should be building one another up. That's what it's about. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 through uh, verse 13, when Paul is talking about all these changes that, he's, that he wants them to make in the Corinthian church, he uses one word. The translator says, act like men. 
And he's talking to women, to children, to teenagers. He's talking to everyone in the church, but he tells them to act like men. Be men. That's what he says. Something is bound up in the concept of masculinity in males. In Corinth, and that's why the NIV translators get it right. And they say, man of courage, men of courage. The idea is, you know, he's telling women to do that, telling kids to do this, telling teenagers that, that. But in the idea, he's telling them all to be courageous like men. So headship we're speaking of is about leadership. It's about smarts. It's about strength. I wasn't going to say this, but I feel like the Lord, I, when I was getting this together, I thought about it because he told me this. And I'm thinking about it again. So, Paul Allen, I hope you're, if you're offended of it, you can go and you can leave the room. Wednesday service. And everybody's tired on Wednesdays when we come. We sit down, we start talking, we have the service, we go home. And I'm sitting there, and Paul, I said, Paul, what you been up to? Well, you know, if you know Paul, you know, well, Victor, let me tell you, my next door neighbor painted her driveway a different color and now spent thousands of dollars, and now it was the wrong color for the HOA, so she's got to go back and sandblast it or or power wash it off. And Paul was pulling in his driveway after a long, hard day of work. And his lovely wife said, Paul, why don't you go help your neighbor? Older couple, Paul jumps out, goes and gets it. And that's crazy. But that's Paul Allen. He forgot about his needs, and his desires, as 1 Corinthians tells us, that's what a godly man does, looks after the needs of others. That's what the whole book so far of 1 Corinthians has has been speaking about. That's what the world is trying to diminish in the nuclear family, the man. We need to stand up for our family, be godly men, and do things godly men is supposed to do, selflessly. That's what Paul is speaking of right now. This means I got to be intelligent. I got to have wisdom. I got to know what to do. I need to have initiative, and I need to have actions behind it. I have to be strong, and I have to be a risk taker in some degree anyway. I have to step out in faith. If you're a man here today, for Christ's sake, take that role. Let the Lord apply to you, especially we have a lot of young men here. Families are growing and everything. Be a man. Don't let the culture decide for you what a man is. Don't let the culture do that. Read your Bible. Follow the Lord. I was on a website, and you probably heard it before, but I've got to read it anyway. And the website said, it started with this warning. And in bold letters, it says, warning to our male readers, the following article contains big words 
and complex sentences. It might be a good idea to have a woman around or nearby to explain it to you. Now, I love jokes. That's pretty cool, I have to admit. But this is what it does steftly. It brings the man down. If I was up here and if I were to tell a joke about black people, you wouldn't like it. And if I were to tell a joke about Hispanics, you wouldn't like it. And if I were to tell a joke about women, it wouldn't get the same laugh. But it's okay to tell those jokes about men. That's the way it goes. And that's the degeneration of a family. God knows those stuff, those slowly eroding jokes and all those things, what they're for. The enemy does. He knows. All I'm saying is, why have we become so desensitized to this? Perhaps because there's a strategy, there's an onslaught of this, and you're saying, come on, grow up. That's not that bad. It's no big deal. You can handle it. What's wrong with you guys? Suck it up. We've got a culture, you know, out there waiting to devour men. Because if you can devour the man, you can devour the entire family. God knows that. And we have to understand they have no clue what that's about. No clue. I'm here to tell you this morning there is an assault on men and especially godly men. So fathers, if you have boys or nephews, every chance you get, first tell them that Jesus loves them and they need to know Jesus. But after you told them that, tell them the magnificent role God has provided for them to be a boy, that you will grow up to be a man. And if you're a godly man, that's going to affect the wife you meet because she's probably going to be a believer just like you. That's going to affect the family because you're going to raise them in a godly atmosphere. And then you'll be doing exactly what Malachi says, because of godly offspring. That's what God wants. So be a man for Christ's sake. The worship team can come up. I was so, I was kicked in the gut when I was listening to this Tate guy. And I was kicked even more in the gut because all of the millions of boys, young boys that follow this degenerate. That tells me something. That tells me that boys are looking for someone to follow. And we want to say what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So any young boys in your family, any young boys that are in your neighborhood, tell them about Jesus. But tell them more even by your walk and spend time with them because they're looking for some kind of leader. And that's what you're here for, to lead them to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, your word is timeless. Things 
are getting all out of whack. Lord, but you have called each man here, each boy that will become a man for such a time as this, to be a man of their family, to be a man of their neighborhood, to be a man in church, to follow the headship, the head man, Jesus Christ. Not to be swayed by what we think is hip, what we may think is cool in the culture. No, Lord, I pray for every male here that we keep our eyes on you. And you know what? It's going to benefit their mate, their wife. That's why it's so, it's so cool that if we can get it right, it influences the entire family. And that's why the Holy Spirit says what he says. The head of man is the woman. The head of Christ is the church and all those things. Lord, so give us grace to live a holy life, to follow you for Christ's sake. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon and coming King. Amen.